Hello, I'm Sam Zellin, and welcome back to the History in Today podcast. First off, I'd like to thank each and every one of you who listened to episode one last week, and to all the people who gave me feedback. I'm trying to make this better and better, so please don't hesitate to let me know your ideas. If you're new here, I deep dive into one historical topic each week and relate it to modern issues. Now, while I'm, cover- while I'm not covering the Black Lives Matter protests still occurring around the country this week, I still want to make it utterly clear that the time for action has not ended. I will again be leaving links to websites where you can support the movement in the description, and I urge you to do what you can in order to help make real change. Today, however, we'll be covering the other big ticket item on our plates right now, global pandemics. For the last six months, COVID-19 has been pretty much top of mind for everyone. It seems like nowhere in the world has been untouched. You're seeing, starting to see some places in the world, like New Zealand, are coming out on the other side, but many people, including especially the U.S., are still very engulfed in this crisis. And even in my lifetime, we had had health crises before like this, where we had SARS, uh, we had the 2009 H1N1 swine flu, we had the 2014 Ebola crisis, and while those were all scary and horrible events in localized areas, they have not had the same umbrella effect on everybody that COVID-19 has had. And today we're going to try to look at why that is and what global pandemics do for the general landscape of things. So the historical event we're going to talk about today is the 1918 flu pandemic, also known as the Spanish flu. Uh, and we're going to split it into three different ways we're going to talk about it. So first, I want to talk about stats. I want to compare Spanish flu and COVID-19 together. Obviously, they're not the same virus, but I want to talk about the stats. The second, I want to talk about the response with the political leaders and just general health care community, I guess, um, on how it was dealt with. And then lastly, I want to talk about the aftermath. Obviously, we're definitely not in the aftermath stage for COVID-19, so I'm going to talk more about the aftermath of the Spanish flu, but I'm also going to look into reopenings that we're having, we're seeing with COVID-19 and how people are kind of treating this new world that we're in now that our reality has been very shook. I'm going to keep that in there. Our reality has been very shook. Doesn't seem right. Why not? We're going with it. So let's get into the stats of the 1918 influenza pandemic and COVID-19. Okay, so to start talking about the 1918 influenza outbreak, or I'm just going to refer to it as the Spanish flu for the rest of the episode for ease of reference. Um, well, let's talk about the background of what was going on at the time. So you have a global event that is connecting everyone at the time, and that's obviously World War One. So World War One went from 1914 to 1918, and this virus did not start after. It started during. Uh, the origin is unclear, and we don't really know where it came from, but we do know that it popped up in Kansas in military personnel in the spring of 1918. So, uh, at least in the U.S. from the U.S. standpoint, that's where it started. We're not really sure where it started. Uh, and that's still up for debate. So this pandemic, in the course of three different waves, we've, you know, been talking about a second wave of COVID. Uh, you never know, maybe there will be a third one. Um, this spread to 500 million people worldwide, which was about 26% of the entire world population at the time. 
the population had not yet hit. It was about seven or eight years out from hitting the two billion mark. We're here at the seven billion mark, so exponential growth is very much at work there. But um, it killed about 50 million people, which is 2.6, if you do the math, uh, percent of the entire world population. And 675,000 of those deaths were in the U.S., uh, which is about 0.6% of the U.S. population. So if you look at those stats compared to COVID, you get a very different picture. Now, the disclaimer with looking at COVID stats is that this is very much a moving process. It is June 10th today, and these stats could change drastically in a way that I could never imagine tomorrow. We don't know what's going to happen, but these are the stats now, and that's all I have to work with. So if you look at the stat, if you look at the cases worldwide, it's 7 million people, about 7 million people, which is 0.1% of the entire world population. And there is good news there because it really does mean that in the last hundred years, medicine has improved. We're not seeing a quarter of the world getting infected by this. We're not going to hit that number ever. It, it's it, This virus is not going to be the percentage equivalent of the Spanish flu. That's a good thing. But the scary part is that 2 million of those 7 million cases come from the United States. And if you recall the infection numbers or the, the death numbers that I have, there actually aren't U.S. infection numbers for the um, Spanish flu. But if you recall the death numbers, uh, the U.S. lost 675,000 people out of the about 50 million deaths worldwide for the Spanish flu. Now, unfortunately, there were 400,000 deaths so far with COVID, and 100,000 of those, which is a quarter of all of them, come from the U.S. So you're starting to see a little bit of a pattern here that is not at all what happened with the Spanish flu. And unfortunately for U.S. citizens in 1918, it was not that this was a much better response to the epidemic than what's going on now. It was, in fact, quite the opposite and a mixture of propaganda, fear, and just general ineptitude among health professionals that led to the world suffering so much more uh, than the U.S. did. While the U.S. COVID-19 response has been criticized for taking over a month to actually respond uh, the U.S. reaction to the Spanish flu was much worse in the fact that it seems from reading literature that there wasn't really any response to the first wave. It seems like, yeah, they treated it in the same way they treated diseases at the time where it was pretty much go to the sick ward, hopefully don't die. We're going to, you know, work our medicine that we have at the time, pretty much. Uh, but the second response, you see a lot of what you're seeing today. Uh, practices that go back to the Black Plague, Black Plague, pretty much. Quarantine, social distancing, don't go near me. That's pretty much the philosophy that they use now. It's the philosophy they used then. And it did start coming into effect. Uh, you started seeing it in November, even really October, which was the big flare-up of the second wave. Uh, you started to see social distancing, the closing of schools, closing of venues. The U.S. actually was a little bit more lax on closings than Europe was, uh, but I think we had kind of gotten more hit by the first wave than the second wave, and the second wave still hit us pretty badly. But the bottom line here is that it's not that the U.S. got lucky or the U.S. had good medicine. We still lost in a population that was over 200 million people smaller 
way more than is projected for us to lose with COVID-19. And the rest of the world just happened to also proportionally lose that amount of people because the medicine sucked at the time. There, there wasn't a, you know, they didn't discover, they didn't isolate influenza for another couple of decades. And they really didn't know what they were dealing with. But the, the other problem, other than the medicine being not what it is today, is how the politics was handled. So if you know anything about World War I policy, we entered World War I in 1917, a year before this broke out. And in 1918, an act was passed that has only been passed twice in this country called the Sedition Act. It was the 1918 Sedition Act, which basically outlaws criticizing the government. And it is very possible that this Sedition Act had an effect on how the Spanish flu was seen in this country and how it is still seen to this day because most of the information we have on it is from that time. It doesn't seem like many people really did their research afterward. So these people are living in a country where they cannot insult the government in a time when the government isn't really responding. And this is a this is a thing we're seeing now where, you know, you have countries like China where the, the people that found the, the person that originally found the COVID-19 virus was told don't talk about it and eventually ended up dying of the disease. But the information manipulation in the world is not as widespread as it was in 1918. In 1918, you had a society where without the internet and without a globalized society, you could pretty much say whatever you want and publish whatever numbers you wanted. And the, the thing that's really sad about that is a hundred years out from that, we still have that. Yes, it's diminished, but we still have that in this world where there are countries that even in a crisis where we're all kind of in this together are more focused on political viewpoint and making things, making the optics look good. And that's a big problem. My biggest issue is that while we definitely have made progress in the last hundred years, yes, our medicine is better. Yes, our reaction time is a little bit faster. It's not good enough in anything. We, we don't prepare for these things adequately. We, you know, looking back, the, the shortages were a problem in both the the 1918 virus and this one, but for different reasons. The 1918 virus had shortages of nurses because they were all at war and the nurses that were on the home front were African-American and we didn't want to use them because of racist purposes. Now, the shortages are because we just simply don't make enough things and we don't make enough respirators, we don't make enough masks, we don't expect for this to happen because we have this kind of an invincibility to our perceived invincibility that we have because we think we've come so far. And the important part about like what I'm trying to say here is that we need to go that far in order to be able to think that we went that far. And looking back at, you know, our biggest weapon against COVID-19 is the quarantine and the, the shelter in place and social distancing, which is exactly what they did going back to 1918, going back to the plague, going back to you know, Roman times, when there was a disease, everyone just hides in their houses. And we need to, you know, come up with a better and be, we, we need to be better at 
dealing with problems and expecting problems because the more innovation that comes out, the more invincible we all feel. Going back to talking about the spread of misinformation and manipulation of the truth, it is kind of a it's kind of a sad tale when you learn about like why the Spanish flu was called the Spanish flu. As for what we know, the the biggest guess for where the Spanish flu came from was Kansas. And that anybody that knows anything about geography or really anything about the world knows that's nowhere near Spain. So uh, why Spain, you ask? Uh, it's most likely because Spain was probably one of the most honest countries when it comes to their reporting and what they did for the world. And because of that, they got branded as the country that the virus came from. They got It became the Spanish flu or the Spanish grip. Uh, and that's just an injustice. And I think for that same reason, we see countries doing the same thing a hundred years now. We see, you know, our president referring to this virus as the Chinese virus. Well, yeah, it came from China, but are we really in a position to be pointing figure fingers when people are dying everywhere? It's these exact sentiments of spreading rumors and negativity towards other countries that leads to events such as World War II and the Cold War. And we don't need to go back to the tense, you know, intertwined uh, who is against who mentality and, you know, every man for himself kind of world where that's not the world we really can afford to live in right now. We live in a globalized society that is very much... You know, it's very much impossible to live on an island, and we all have to cooperate if we're not going to have to deal with this again. Pivoting into a more immediate lesson that we can take from a Spanish flu is something more close to home and just U.S.-centric. And the Spanish flu was split into three waves in the U.S., where you had the first wave, which was mostly military. Uh, it was not as strong as the second wave and the response was much less. And then you had the second wave, which was in the fall, where the death tolls were incredibly high and incredibly quickly. Uh, so you had um, the third one, which came in January, and was more of just your general cold and flu season that was still bad, but not as bad as the second one. But the I would say right now, we kind of skipped the first phase, like our, our second our first wave is more like the second wave of the Spanish flu, where you had a bad, a, a bad pandemic. Uh, and I think right now we're kind of in that stage of celebration where we think we're kind of out of the way and now we're laxing a little bit on our social distancing. And that exact event happened where you had the end of World War One, which at the time is the war to end all wars, where people think peace is going to be forever in this new world where no one is going to fight. They, they think, you know, every country just hashed it out and now it's all over and, you know, that didn't go too well. But everyone's super excited. Everyone's super pumped. And they all kind of forgot that they were in the middle of this global crisis for health. So big celebrations happened at the end of the war. And that kind of just took all the progress and reverted it. And 
unfortunately, we're seeing a lot of that now where, yes, their protests are happening and that's one part of it. But there's also a lot of people that just for the sake of feeling more comfortable now are also just kind of forgetting the progress that has happened in the last three months and saying, don't worry about it. We're fine. And that is going to lead to, for us, a second wave for the people of 1918, what was a third wave. And hopefully by then we will have a way to deal with it more medically than with the archaic method. Now we're going to shift into the last part of this uh, before the conclusion, where we're going to talk about the aftermath. And luckily for society, the aftermath of the Spanish flu was mostly in the public health sphere. And it seems like they, they definitely made improvements uh, based on their quick reaction or as quick as possible reaction to the Spanish flu, where they definitely did make leaps and bounds. And that led to, you know, eventually finding the flu, like the actual flu virus uh, in the 30s. And that's all well and good. But as I said earlier, they clearly, you know, they were motivated by this horrible event. And then that kind of went away. Uh, just as I said last week with the protesting, it's all, you know, incredibly potent while it's happening. But the minute that it doesn't happen, then it kind of falls by the wayside. And I think that's probably what's where, what we're heading for with the COVID-19. I think if we get out of this and we all go back to how it was in 2019 when nobody really cared about or never really thought about what would happen if we all had to be under quarantine because of a deadly virus, nothing will have been learned. And it's really interesting to think that, yeah, they they did make some breakthroughs, but also what followed immediately after was what we refer to as the Roaring Twenties, where it was a reckless time filled with lavish parties, clearly no social distancing. Uh, and I think that's what's going to happen here. I think we are going to head towards a time where, yes, there will be advancements in medicine, but people are going to return to their normal lives. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I think people returning to their normal lives is what has to happen to restore sanity to the world. But I do think it's up to the health community to make sure that people can go back to their normal lives. I think when our country, based on the the rumor spreading and the negativity that I talked about earlier leaves the World Health Organization, we're not doing anybody any favors. We're not doing ourselves any favors because we're just making the world a more dangerous place. And I think while the people who were the doctors at the end and during the Spanish flu understood that they needed to get better, I don't think the generation after them really understood that. And I don't think the generations after that were able to influence policy enough, even if they did understand that there could be. And there is, you know, there are many accounts of the health community warning politicians that there could be another pandemic coming. And it's all about getting the policy and getting the precautions in place to keep this from happening again. Before I go into my conclusion, I want to smooth over a fact about uh, what something I said earlier, and that's why the Spanish flu was called the Spanish flu. So the country of Spain in World War I was neutral and their press was basically free and allowed to do whatever it wanted. This was not the case on either the Allies or the Central Powers side. 
and propaganda was the name of the game. You had a sedition act, as I mentioned earlier, had been passed in the U.S., and this went for the press. The press in the U.S., the, you know, First Amendment freedom of the press country, it was not allowed to criticize the government. So you don't have a lot of reporting about the numbers and about the death in the U.S., and you don't have a lot of reporting about it in Europe. And because of that, in Spain, which was neutral, they took the brunt of the hit. This is, as I said earlier, still a problem where you have, you know, false reporting and you have uh, not exactly free presses or just totally oppressed presses uh, that are completely controlled by the government. And that is why there is a serious fake news problem in this country where, in this world, where when you have a media such as the the internet where anything can be posted and anything can be said and leaders are on Twitter spouting whatever they feel, uh, you have to be vigilant and actually make sure that you know the facts and you talk about the facts as opposed to talking about what you hear or what you don't hear in the case of the Spanish flu and a lot of other issues of the time. To conclude, COVID-19 and Spanish flu when it happened both expose these horrible weaknesses in society that still exist and will exist until something is seriously done about them. And it's this fact that we kind of have a boy who cried wolf mentality about disease, where we see the Ebolas of the world and we see the H1N1s of the world, and yeah, they're killing people, but they're not killing us. That's the whole mentality. They're not, SARS didn't make it out of Asia. Ebola didn't make it out of West Africa for the most part. And then we, we kind of feel invincible as this shining city on the hill that doesn't get sick. And then we do get sick. And because we had that invincibility, no one was there to kind of help us and give us our, you know, hell, our support and our help when, you know, we kind of sat back and said, don't worry, we, we're not getting hit by this. Well, now we're not getting, we're getting the same treatment. And it's, now that it's the entire world, no one is there to be the person looking down. And we are faced with the fact that we all have to do something and yeah maybe not individuals but all as countries this is a public health crisis that has exposed the fact that we are not the pinnacle of science yet we have farther to go we have more things we can accomplish and that's not a bad thing the world is not a solved puzzle and it never will be unfortunately the world has a really, really, really cruel way of reminding us of this. I got my facts for today from four sources, uh, including the CDC website, which is where I found the stats on the Spanish flu, the Johns Hopkins University website, which is the, it's got running COVID stats uh, every day, you can look it up. Um, Laura Spinney's Pale Rider book, which is just about the history of COVID, of um, the Spanish flu in this country and what it did to affect the next century, and a journal of preventative medicine and hygiene article by Martini, Gazaniga, Bragazzi, and Barbaris about Spanish flu. And I hope you enjoyed. I 
am trying to get this out on other platforms other than Anger as soon as possible. Hopefully, episode three will be on that. We are having a guest in episode three. Uh, if you would like to give me any more feedback, please hit me up on Instagram or Facebook. Instagram is preferred as of right now, but Facebook and maybe even a Twitter will be up by the end of next week. I would like to thank you again for listening and I hope you all have a great week. Thank you.